The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That is gracebible.faith. Our passage this morning is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you go ahead and open your Bibles there. We've been doing Old Testament survey in our second hour for a number of months now, and we're close to finishing that study. Matt will cover part two of the 12 in our second hour, and we looked at Daniel last week. So I chose 2 Thessalonians 2 this morning because there's a number of connections between uh, what we've been doing in Old Testament survey and this chapter. First, the day of the Lord is a prominent theme in the latter prophets. And Paul talks about the day of the Lord in both First and Second Thessalonians. So there's a connection there. And second, if you'll remember from our study last week in the book of Daniel, we saw in Daniel chapter 11 that this king, this powerful king arises with a powerful kingdom in the last days. A king we also know as the false Christ or the Antichrist. And with the ex- exception of the book of Revelation, 2 Thessalonians 2 is the one that gives us the chapter in the book that gives us the most detail about this character, the the Antichrist. So there's a significant connection there as well. Before we get into chapter 2 itself, let's briefly set the context for the entire letter of 2 Thessalonians. This is the second of two that Paul wrote to this church, a church that he established on his second missionary journey. And First and Second Thessalonians are the most eschatological of all of Paul's letters. You know, each one of Paul's letters uh, has major emphases in it, and certainly First and Second Thessalonians talks about other issues other than eschatology, but it also talks about such topics as the rapture, the day of the Lord, and this future punishment of unbelievers and vindication of believers at the Lord's return. Second Thessalonians followed just a few months after First Thessalonians. It was written in about 50 or 51 AD. And in Second Thessalonians 1, Paul gives thanks to the Lord for these believers and the progress they had made since the last report he received about them. Their faith was growing beyond measure. Their love for each other was superabounding. They were doing so well in these things that Paul held them up as examples to other churches. They were also remaining steadfast in their faith in Christ despite increasing persecution against them as followers of Christ. So in many ways, like the church at Philippi, they were a very good church, always able to do better, but Paul is very commending of them. In order to encourage them to remain steadfast in their present afflictions, Paul points them to the future judgment of God. This will be a time when both their persecutors, and they were being persecuted, And they, as the persecuted ones, will receive their just rewards from God. He'll deal out retribution to both Jews and Gentiles, those who rejected Christ in this life. They'll be denied entrance into his kingdom. They will suffer the penalty of eternal destruction in the lake of fire, and they'll be eternally separated from God. Believers, on the other hand, will be given rest. They're enduring their persecutions and afflictions now, but they'll be given rest from that. They'll be declared by God to be worthy to enter his kingdom, and they will share in the glory of Christ and be given new bodies that are no longer indwelt by sin and no longer under its curse. They will enjoy living in the presence of God forever. As is frequently his habit, Paul closes chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians with a prayer, a prayer for these believers. 
He prays for their present ongoing faithfulness in every desire for goodness and good works produced by faith. And he prays for their future acceptance by God when Christ returns in glory. So that's a very brief background, just setting the stage for us as we get to chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. I've put the outline on the screen here. And what we're going to do is just read a section at a time and work through it a section at a time. I'm going to try to cover all 17 verses. I think we can do it uh, because it's one unit, and it really is its hard to divide up. It's good to do it at one setting. So we start out with false teaching concerning the day of the Lord. This is in verses 1 and 2. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed, either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So Paul introduces this topic of the day of the Lord here. And as I said earlier, it's a prominent theme in the latter prophets. Matt's already talked some about it in the books he's already covered. I feel sure he's going to talk about it some more this morning. Uh, we can define the day of the Lord as a supernatural inbreaking by God to bring judgment and punishment on unbelievers, but ultimately salvation for those that belong to him. Now, I want us to read, I know you're familiar with this concept because of what man has already taught us, but I want us to read just a couple of passages out of the latter prophets to give us a feel for this day in particular as background for what we're looking at in 2 Thessalonians 2. Isaiah 2.12 says, For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up that he may be abased. So the day of the Lord is obviously a day of reckoning against the proud. Jeremiah 30 verse 7 says, Alas, that day is great. There's none like it. It is the time of Jacob's distress. Here Jacob really is just a stand-in for the nation of Israel but he will be saved from it. So the day of the Lord is a great time of, or sorry, a time of great tribulation for the nation of Israel, out of which she will be purified and refined and ultimately delivered. But it's not just a time of distress for Israel. It's a day in which God will pour out his wrath against the whole world. Zephaniah verse, chapter 1, verse 14 Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord, in it the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord, and their blood would be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath, and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. For he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. Hey, it gives you chills to read that. It's very strong language. And it's very wide-reaching. Now, Paul had already given the Thessalonians instructions about the day of the Lord on two previous occasions. One, he evidently, when he went there and established the church, he taught them about that day. 
Then he followed up in his first letter, and now he's having to follow up again in his second letter. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul speaks of how the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, which echoed the way that Jesus described it in his Olivet Discourse and in other places in the Gospels. How it will catch unbelievers by surprise and be a time of great wrath for them, as we've already read, but how also believers need not fear this because God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. But as we come to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we see that shortly after Paul's first letter, there were misunderstandings that arose, and Paul needed to address them. In his first letter, he had taught that Christ would come and take the church out of the world at the end of chapter 4. That's the classic passage on the rapture. And their understanding would have been that the rapture would initiate, initiate the tribulation that was to come, the seven-year period, but that the believers would not be part of that tribulation. However, as we see from verses 1 and 2, some people were spreading false information about the day of the Lord and saying it was already in progress and that they were suffering because of it. Paul exhorts the believers not to be shaken by such false claims, whether they come through a spirit. And what he likely means here is somebody having or at least purporting to have the gift of prophecy standing up and saying, that we're now in the day of the Lord. Keep in mind that at this point in the development of the church, that gift would have still been operative. And you can imagine that it would have been subject to abuse. You had to, certainly prophecy was a legitimate gift, but you also had to have people that were able to discern whether or not somebody was really speaking on behalf of the Lord or not. A second way that it might have come would just be through a message. It's what the NES says. Literally, it's a word. And that would have been a report or an oral message, again, proclaiming that the day of the Lord was already here. And then finally, he says, or a letter as if from us. The implication is that a letter had come with Paul's name attached, forged at the bottom, saying that the day of the Lord had already arrived. Now, incidentally, Paul makes sure that they won't be taken in by that kind of claim, by, by saying at the end of his letter here, 2 Thessalonians 3.17, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. So he gave them a sample of his handwriting by signing off the letter at the end. And we've talked about how Paul would use an amanuensis and he would kind of dictate his letters and somebody else would write them. But in this case, to make sure that they're not taken in again by a forged letter, he gives them an example of his handwriting so that they'll know it's him. But these believers, thinking that their persecution might be connected with the day of the Lord, were now wondering if that day had already begun. This was a cause, as you can imagine, of great alarm for them, and Paul wants to allay their anxiety. <clears throat> anxiety. So Paul needs to correct this false understanding of the day of the Lord as being already in progress, and he does that by giving two proofs that the day of the Lord was not present. Verse 3, let no one in any way deceive you. And the Greek construction there is very emphatic. You know, it's, it's improper English for us to use a double negative, but in Greek that's a very uh, strong way of emphasizing a point, and that's what we have here. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, 
the son of destruction. Now, the first thing we have to deal with here in verse 3 is a translation issue. No matter which English translation you're using this morning, whether it's the NAS, the KJV, the NKJV, the ESV, or the NIV, all of them say something along the lines of that day will not come or that day will not arrive. If you're using an NAS or a KJV, you'll notice that the words it will not come are in italics. That means that they've been supplied by the translator to make the sentence more clear. They're not actually part of the Greek text. And this is not a wrong thing. Uh, this is what's called an ellipsis. An ellipsis is when there is an omission of words or phrases that, and something has to be supplied in order for it to be clear, particularly when you're translating from Greek to English. You have to supply something. If we were to read verse 3 literally without supplying anything, here's how it would read. Let no one in any way deceive you, for unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now you good English folks out there recognize that the first part of that sentence can stand alone, but the second part is a sentence fragment, and you have to supply something for it to be grammatically correct and to read smoothly in English. And of course, you have to take the immediate context in as you decide what does need to be supplied. <clears throat> the problem is that the tense of the verb that, that virtually all modern English translations use is a future tense. It will not come. What's the problem with that? Well, it makes it sound like that these two events, the apostasy and the revelation of the man of lawlessness, come before the day of the Lord. And this, of course, impacts our doctrine of the imminency of the rapture. You've heard me say before, and we teach as a church, that the rapture is imminent. And what we mean by that is nothing else has to come before it comes. We maintain that Christ could come at any time, that nothing remains to be fulfilled before he comes to rapture his church, and that that's what starts the judgments of the day of the Lord. <clears throat> but the way this verse reads that it begs the question, should we be looking for these two things, the apostasy and the revelation of the man of lawlessness, before Christ comes? It's better instead to let the immediate context dictate what we supply in the ellipsis and take the same tense of the verb that ends verse 2. That says, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, this is a perfect tense in Greek, and a perfect tense in Greek is speaking of a completed action that has effects that continue on into the future. So let me reread verses 2 and 3 with that in mind. That you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it has not come. Or another legitimate way to translate it is, it is not present unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Paul is not saying that these two events precede the day of the Lord, but they're actually part of it. And what he's saying to the Thessalonians, his original audience, is because you do not observe these two phenomena, the apostasy and the revelation of the man of lawlessness, the day of the Lord is not present, and therefore you are not in it. So let's look at these two proofs of the non-arrival of the day of the Lord 
in a little more detail. <clears throat> First proof that the day of the Lord was not present is that the apostasy, and the, the article is there in Greek, it's talking about something very specific and very defined, had not occurred and therefore was not visible to Paul's readers. Now, we can define apostasy as someone who falls away or forsakes a previous confession. And we're not talking here about individuals that have done that. Certainly, that's been something that's happened from the very beginning of church history. I don't doubt that it had happened in, even in the city of Thessalonica. It's something that still happens today. What we are talking about here is a large-scale worldwide apostasy that occurs at a specific point in time, and it's a large enough event for everyone to know about. You know, this is a 9-11 kind of event where people all over the world knows that it happens. When the true church is taken out of the world at the rapture, there will still be a great mass of people on the earth who had previously made some profession of faith in Christ perhaps even showed some commitment, or pretense at least, of following him, but were not truly committed to him in their hearts. Now, you might think or ask, who would that be? What kind of group are you talking about? How many people are you talking about? Think about our missions moments. Most of the time, when we have a missions moment up here, we have either a dominant Roman Catholic situation or a state church of some other kind, Greek Orthodox, or even the Church of England. People who are born into the church, regardless of what their belief is. That is not a healthy situation. Think about how many people worldwide that would be. Add to that the Christian cults, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, other cults that, that give Christ some credit. They make some claim about him, although they don't understand who his true person is. These folks will completely forsake their confession and their apostasy and, and ungodliness that goes with it will be manifest throughout the world. And it will be, be, I believe, a very large number of people. The second proof that the day of the Lord was not present is the revelation of the man of lawlessness. Now this is the false Christ or the antichrist and we learn a lot more about his character in verses 4 through 12. Here, his character is really just summarized in two ways. First, as the man of lawlessness, meaning he opposes God and his teaching and his laws in every way, he will be the, human, the, the key human leader in the apostasy. And Satan will so completely indwell and dominate him that he will completely delight in opposing both God's righteousness, God's laws, and God's people. Secondly, he's described as the son of destruction. Now, this is a common Hebrew idiom, and it can be taken in one of two ways. It's either describing the character of the person or their destiny. And I think in this case, both fit, but I believe it's talking about destiny more than character. The same phrase is used of Judas Iscariot in John 17, 12, when he's called the son of perdition or destruction. In his case, in Judas' case, I mean, he didn't really destroy. He did betray Christ, to be sure. But it's talking about what's going to happen to him ultimately. Obviously, the Antichrist and Judas Iscariot are not the same two men, but both will end up in the same place. And that place is the lake of fire. We read about this for the false Christ in Revelation 
the false Christ is called one of the beasts in Revelation, and it says, The beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Remember, that's right after Christ's return. It's before the millennium. Satan doesn't end up in the lake of fire until after the millennium. Now, in verses 4 through 12, Paul goes on to describe further both the man of lawlessness and those who are deceived by him. Let's read those verses now. This false Christ, the son of destruction, is the one who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And again, this was when Paul was first there establishing the church. And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one who is coming, whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. As I said, in these verses, Paul is further describing the character of the false Christ. He opposes other gods and exalts himself above every other god of all false religions. But not only does he elevate himself above false gods, he also elevates himself above the one true God. He even takes a seat in the temple of God, demanding worship that is due to God alone. Now, you have to keep in mind that at this point, in the early 50s, the temple is still standing. I believe Paul expected this to happen in his day. He was looking for the return of Christ, and it would have been you know, not hard for him to imagine that the false Christ could take his seat in the temple. Now, the temple ends up being destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D., but the place where it stood has still been preserved to this day. It's the same place that Solomon stood, Solomon's temple stood before it. And it is on that same place that we expect and that many in the Jewish nation today are uh, seeking to do a new temple to be rebuilt. And that's the one that the false Christ will take his seat in so that these words in Second Thessalonians will be fulfilled just as written. Now we can look both backward and forward in the scripture to see confirmation of this description of the character of the false Christ. Uh, we've, we've seen some of it already, but let's look again at Daniel chapter 11, verses 36 and 37. You remember that, Dan that chapter in Daniel is talking about the interaction between two of the generals, two of the four, that succeeded Alexander the Great, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. But at a certain point in that chapter, it, it makes a jump between talking about those two dynasties to this future king. And that jump takes place in verse 36. 
Then the king will do as he pleases. And he's talking about this false Christ that will be in power at the end of the age. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god. Notice the similarity of language there to 2 Thessalonians 2. And will speak monstrous things against the God of gods, against the true God. He will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. Now, it's very important to keep that in mind. All of this is according to the perfect plan of God. That's clear here in the book of Daniel. It's clear in the book of Revelation. God, as Martin Luther said, Satan is God's Satan. The devil is God's devil. He uses him for his own purpose, and he's doing that here. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. So that's a backward look for uh, a fore, uh, forecast or a prophecy of the Antichrist and what he will be like. We can also look forward from where we are in Second Thessalonians to the book of Revelation. Now, we did some of this Wednesday night, but I want us to reach Revelation chapter 13. It's a fascinating chapter because it describes a counterfeit trinity. Uh, I want us to read uh, all the way through to the end of that chapter verse 18. So you might want to go ahead and open your Bible so you can follow along. And we'll just point out, and you can listen for the counterfeit trinity that's described. Revelation 13.1 says, And he stood on the sand of the seashore. Now if you look back up in chapter 12, the he there is talking about the dragon. And the dragon is the one who has gone off to make war with the, against the rest of the seed of the woman. And we learn from earlier in chapter 12 who that dragon is. It's Satan. So that one's clear enough. I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like those of a bear, his mouth like the mouth of a lion. Think back to Daniel chapter 7. All of those are characteristics of the four beasts that we saw or the three preceding beasts that we saw in Daniel chapter 7. And the dragon, again the dragon is Satan, gave him, the beast, his power and his throne and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed. This again is talking about the beast, the beast out of the sea. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. This beast is a counterfeit of Christ, and he even counterfeits a resurrection from the dead. Uh, and we know this is the modus operandi of Satan all the way back to the Garden of Eden. He counterfeits the truth, and he works by deception. So in this case, he comes back from the dead, and the whole world marvels after him, it says, followed after the beast. And they worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast. So in the same way that we worship God the Father and God the Son, they worship the dragon and the beast, the false Christ, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war with him? And they were given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. 42 months is the same as three and a half years 
this is a very fixed number in Scripture. The last period of tribulation is a seven-year period divided up into two halves. The false Christ is definitely on the scene at the beginning of that seven-year period, but he really rises to power and dominates the last three and a half years. He opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. So he's blaspheming the God who dwells in heaven. He's also persecuting those who confess that God, that true living God, on the earth. Verse 7, it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name does not stand written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with a sword, with a sword he must be killed. Here's the perseverance and the faith of the saints. So, so far, we've met two members of this counterfeit trinity, the dragon, who is Satan, who counterfeits the father, and the first beast out of the sea, who is the false Christ and counterfeits the true Christ. Lastly, we have the beast out of the earth, who is also called the false prophet. Who does he counterfeit? The Holy Spirit. Just as the Holy Spirit points to Christ and convicts us of sin and enlightens us uh, to embrace the gospel, the false prophet will, will point to the false Christ, and he will convince people that what the false Christ says, even though it's false by a true standard, he will convince them that it is the truth. Let's read about him in the last part of uh, chapter 13. I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast in the same way that the Spirit is the one who leads us to worship Jesus Christ. This first beast, whose fatal wound was healed, he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. There was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast might even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one should be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the number of the beast or the number of his name. I'm sorry, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. The number is that of a man. And his number is 666. Now, there's a lot there that we're not going to try to unpack this morning. The main reason I wanted to read through that is so you see the counterfeit trinity and you see that that false Christ is the one who is the visible representation on the earth um, dominating that last kingdom before Christ returns. Now, I do want to talk about this 666 a little bit because that's an area in church history where folks have often made predictions and being wrong with regard to the identity of the false Christ. P. 
People have said that it was one of the Roman emperors, Nero or Diocletian. During the Reformation time, it was very popular to identify the Pope as the false Christ. Uh, when I was in middle school, we had it nailed down as it was Henry Kissinger. Now, I know some of you won't know who Henry Kissinger was, but he was Secretary of State under Nixon in the late 60s and the early 70s. And the way that we had it nailed down was really interesting. If you take the alphabet, A, B, C, D, E, F, and you start with six for A and then go add six to each letter, 6, 12, 18, 24, and then you take the last name of Kissinger and take all the corresponding numbers that go with that name, it adds up to 666. So it was him. Now, we were wrong. Many people have been wrong. It's wrong to try to figure out who it is. There have been figures in history that have foreshadowed the false Christ, and I'm thinking of Antiochus Epiphanes especially, as described in the book of Daniel. He was both very deceitful, blasphemed the true God, and persecuted the Jews tremendously. But the ultimate false Christ, as described in 2 Thessalonians 2, has not yet been revealed, and he will not be revealed until the day of the Lord comes. When he does arrive on the scene, he will be the leader over a worldwide system uh, of tremendous control. I mean, we already read about having to have the name and, or number of the beast to be able to buy or sell. Uh, he'll have great political power, but he'll also use false religion, demanding worship for himself. And he will have a worldwide control unlike anything that we've ever seen in history. And that's a pretty strong statement. I mean, there's been some... And we've read about some tremendous world of empires in history, but this one will be unlike anything that we've ever seen. In verse 5, Paul reminds the Thessalonians that he spoke to them about these things when he was there in person. He also reminds them that they already know what the restraining of this false Christ, or what it is that restrains this false Christ, until the time that God is ready to make him known. What is this restraining force? It's kind of an obscure phrase here, and there's been a lot of disagreement about it among various Bible commentators. Um, options include that it's the preaching of the gospel, the binding of Satan, some form of human gov government in addition to that of the false Christ, or God's people, either the nation of Israel or the church. And that's actually getting closer to the mark. Greek grammar helps us here to, to nail down which option it is. I need to get a little grammatical here, so bear with me. In the Greek language, there's three types of gender for every noun or pronoun or relative pronoun. It's masculine, feminine, or neuter. And we look at the, the way the NAS translates verse 6 and 7 here. Very literally, it says, what restrains him in verse 6 that what is a relative pronoun and it's in the neuter gender just by that's the assignment for that particular word and then who restrains him in verse 7 that's a masculine gender now we have a very similar phenomena in John 14 verse 26 and we know what the person is in that case we have the same kind of change from neuter to masculine gender for the pronoun. Let me read that verse. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom 
And now that word is neuter in gender. And the reason is that the, the, the word for spirit in Greek is neuter in gender. So that's a grammatical agreement. The relative pronoun agrees with the noun that precedes it. The Father will send my name. Then it says he. That's a masculine gender. And we have here what we call natural agreement. Not grammatical agreement, but natural agreement. And the reason is that the Holy Spirit is a masculine person, right? All three members of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, are he's. So that's why you have a change from neuter to masculine pronoun. He'll teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So I think that's the, the same thing that's happening in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is the Holy Spirit who is restraining evil and the false Christ as the Holy Spirit indwells the church today. Paul goes on to say that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work in the present age. In fact, the false Christ or the ideology of the Antichrist has been at work ever since the church was born. The Apostle John warned about this in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ, the, that is the true Jesus Christ, has come in the flesh, is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming... And he's thinking about this later coming of the ultimate Antichrist. And now it is already in the world. So the spirit of Antichrist obviously is in the world already. I mean, many people have died through church history because of the opposition to Christ and to the gospel. These Thess Christians at Thessalonica were being persecuted by that spirit of opposition. And Christians through the ages have continued to be persecuted by it throughout the world. But when the church is taken out of the world through the rapture, the Holy Spirit who indwells the church will go out with it. He'll no longer serve as a restraining influence of sin and lawlessness as he does through the church in the present age. And at that time, the man of lawlessness, man of lawlessness will be fully revealed and worldwide lawlessness and opposition to God through a false religious system will follow. And I should be quick to add that that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit's not working during the tribulation period. The church is not there. He's not indwelling the church. But he's still convicting people to sin. The gospel is still being proclaimed. And there'll be a lot of people saved during the tribulation period. I don't think they'll be able to live very long after that. But Revelation chapter 7 describes this great multitude that comes as a result of the gospel still being proclaimed. Well, What's the final outcome of all this? Verse 8 says that that lawless one, the false Christ, will be revealed from the Lord, will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. The Antichrist will rule over the entire world for the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. It will be a time of great trouble for anyone who does not fall in line with this world leader. He'll he'll be able to have them executed. But that, too, is a rule ordained by God and for his purposes. 
false Christ will be destroyed at the return of the true Christ at the end of the tribulation. We read Revelation 19.20 earlier. Let me read 19.19-20 just so we see that again. Again, this is right at the end of the tribulation period. The false Christ has ruled for three and a half years. He's destroyed at the return of the true Christ. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army, that's Christ. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Until that final defeat of the false Christ, Satan will be the one who energizes him, even to the point of enabling him to do supernatural works, signs and false wonders, according to verse 9. Now, these are false wonders not because they're not supernatural. I mean, Satan has the power to do supernatural things, things that we couldn't do as human beings. But they're false wonders because they affirm what is false. And those who are perishing will see them and believe the claims of the false Christ. In the same way that believers, especially when Christ was on the earth, they saw the attesting miracles and they believed in him because of those miracles. Secondly, these, will also, these are also described as false wonders because they will confuse unrighteousness for righteousness. And they will confuse a false God for the true God. <clears throat> Interestingly enough, it won't be because these folks have never heard the gospel or are unfamiliar with the true Christ. It will be because they heard the truth and rejected it. Now, there'll no doubt be people during the tribulation period that will hear the gospel for the first time, and I think that's what Revelation 12 is talking about. There'll be, continue to be, the 144,000 witnesses and a worldwide proclamation of the gospel through the seven years. And there'll be people that have never heard the gospel before that will hear it then and be saved. But as we've already seen, there'll also be a large group of people left behind at the rapture who have heard the gospel in this age and have rejected it. And in fact, because of their own rejection, God himself will send a deluding influence upon them so that they'll embrace the lie and believe what is false. They'll actually believe that this false Christ and his message is the truth because they've already rejected the true Christ and the real truth. Verse 12 emphasizes again that this is a judgment of God against them because they did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. God gave them over fully to that wickedness, largely the same way he does in Romans 1, so that they are deluded and fully embrace that which is false. Now, that's a pretty dark picture. But Paul doesn't leave us here. Let's look now at the contrast and his thanksgiving for the different destiny of believers in verses 13 through 15. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And it was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter, from us. Most of what we've read this morning has been quite sober about the coming judgment of the world and the day of the Lord, 
because of their rejection of Christ and his gospel. But Paul ends the section on a very encouraging note, both for the Thessalonians and for us as believers today, part of the body of Christ. Despite the tragic end of those he has described in the preceding verses, Paul is thankful that God has chosen some for salvation even before time began. In contrast to those who will be deceived by the false Christ, this group will be redeemed and avoid the judgment of the day of the Lord. We who are believers today in Christ are in that group. God has called us at a certain point in time through the preaching of his truth. And by his work in our hearts, we believe that truth and embrace the true Christ as our Lord and Savior. We're being sanctified over the course of our lives by the Spirit as God works to illuminate his truth to us and to conform us to the image of Christ. And the end of our salvation will be sharing with Christ in his glory for all eternity. Therefore, just as Paul exhorted the Thessalonians to stand firm, let us also stand firm in these things that we've been taught, not only from Paul's letters, as precious as those are to us, and all the New Testament epistles, but we really need to stand firm on all of the Word of God, all that he teaches us. That's what we're committed to as a church, is to teach faithfully the whole counsel of God. Well, I've not read verses uh, 16 and 17 because they're Paul's prayer, and I want to include them in our closing prayer. They're just as relevant for us today as they were for the Thessalonians. So let's close our time in prayer, and I'll, I'll read these verses then. Lord, indeed, we're thankful for the true Christ. We're thankful for his coming, his willingness to lay aside the glory he had with you before the foundation of the world, to come into this world and take on human flesh, to bear the wrath that we rightfully deserve as sinners, and to enable you to be just and the justifier of the one who puts his faith in Christ. We thank you that through Christ's finished work on the cross, we are reconciled to you and forgiven of our sins. And we have that Holy Spirit that indwells us individually and puts us together in the body of Christ, both universally and in local assemblies. We thank you that you have saved us from this coming wrath that so much of your word describes here in 2 Thessalonians 2, the book of Revelation, Christ's message in the Olivet Discourse, certainly in the latter prophets. It's a very dominant theme in your word. And it's the, the very thing, your wrath, that you have saved us from through Christ. The wrath that first shows itself in the day of the Lord on this earth, but also ends up in an eternal lake of fire. Lord, I thank you for each one here this morning that heard at a particular point in time the gospel and through the work of your spirit, uh, had their eyes and heart open to embrace that message and to embrace Christ. I also pray for any of those here that have heard the gospel and not yet responded, not yet uh, understood it, not yet embraced Christ as their Lord. Lord, we pray for their salvation. Pray for their conviction of sin and their recognition that they need a Savior from this coming wrath. Lord, we just pray as Paul did. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace comfort and strengthen our hearts 
in every good work and word. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.